Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Dean Blackburn about his new book, Penguin Books and Political Change, Britain's Meritocratic Moment, 1937 to 1988. Uh, So welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot, Dave. Very pleased to be here. Uh, This this is a fantastic book. It's uh, incredibly interesting, gives, uh, I think, a a new uh, perspective on um, this, uh, as you described, meritocratic moment uh, in, in the middle of the um, 20th century, but also most um, kind of usefully, it speaks to a range of different um, academic traditions and, and academic concerns covering kind of cultural studies, history, um, political economy, uh, political science, political theory. Um, and I suppose the place to start is probably to hear a bit about the key uh, object in the book, which is this Penguin Books. Um, And it'd be great to hear a bit about um, what the Penguin Books are and where they fit into, I guess, the kind of the story um, of of Britain in in the 30s um, and, and onwards. Sure. I mean, uh, the thing is, I'm sure a lot of listeners are very uh, familiar with Penguin Books uh, and very familiar in particular with the very distinctive logo. Um, But I I imagine that quite a few of your listeners probably don't know that much uh, about the social and and cultural significance of Penguin Books historically. Uh, I think the the key historical achievement for Penguin really was to popularise the paperback book. Uh, If you were a low-income reader in 1930s Britain and you wanted to access quality literature, you basically had two options. You had to save up your money and buy an expensive hardback, or you went to the lending library. Uh, and Penguin Books really disrupted that model. Um, they, they created uh, mass-produced paperback books, um, which were, were easily available, readily available at retail outlets that low-income people could read. And really, they, they, they um, contributed to the kind of democratisation of British culture from, from the 1930s onwards. Um, and and the, the political and cultural kind of consequences of that were really very significant indeed and what i try to do with my book really is try to kind of use penguin books as a kind of lens through which to view some of these political and uh, and cultural and cultural changes so i think alan lane who was who was penguin books uh, founder uh, founded the company in 1934 really kind of tapped into some broader kind of social and cultural changes that were already really in motion um, and then gave them a particular inflection uh, and what i tried to do really is kind of pick up the story from when Alan Lane founded the company and kind of look in particular at kind of political ideas and changing patterns of kind of intellectual thought and use Penguin in a sense to tell a, a quite new story really um, about political and cultural change over the course of the post-war period. I mean, the, the other thing and the clue again is is in the title is it's not just a kind of a pre and post-war period, but you, you specifically uh, kind of highlight this um, meritocratic moments, as you call it, but also you know the, this 
uh, core idea about merit and, and meritocracy. And I mean, this, you, you know, is um, both a kind of um, quite a contemporary term and is, is, is discussed in, um, you know, various bits of kind of academic and, and popular uh, discussion has been various books that are you know sort of unpacking or grappling with meritocracy that have been published over the last year or so, um, and also it's you know a, a theoretical or um, you know a, a kind of a core idea in in your book, and I, I wonder if you could sort of lay out why uh, meritocracy and the idea of merit are important uh, to your story. Sure, I mean I think you're certainly right that, that it's a concept that is now. Really, at the at the kind of um, at the middle of all sorts of different scholarly debates, philosophical ones, sociological ones, political ones, and so forth, uh, and that's definitely reflected in some of the the historiography on the period that I'm studying. So I'm, I'm by no means the first scholar to really try and get at this, um, but but what I've I hoped to have really done with the book is trying to kind of use it, uh, the concept that is, to kind of tell a, a particular story about Brent's intellectual politics, about the kind of role of ideas in shaping uh, political practices in the post-war period. So in fact, a couple of days ago, I was listening to the to, to the podcast that you have on, on Peter Mandler's recent book, which I think is absolutely brilliant. Uh, but the story that he tells about meritocracy is maybe a slightly different one to the one that I tell. He's really concerned in particular with kind of education policy. And I'm not really concerned with, with education, although it's really part of my story. But what I really try and do is say, well, look, if there were some ideas that kind of held together Britain's kind of what you might call a, a political settlement in the post-war period, there could be an argument to be made that they were meritocratic in character. And what I mean by that is that they lend themselves to the idea that um, that the way that we should distribute rewards and status should be based on observable merits and talents. Um, and that idea really, you could argue, took root in terms of shaping um, ideas about policymaking in the 1940s and 1950s um, and continued to have quite a strong hold over um, uh, kind of political thinking uh, right up until perhaps the late 1970s. So I don't by any means suggest that you know there was there was a complete ideological accord in the post-war moment on these kinds of ideas. I just think that they were almost kind of a, a, a point of compromise uh, for a lot of policymakers and a lot of political thinkers. Um, and what I do really in the book is trace kind of the rise and fall of this kind of meritocratic moment. And I should say I kind of borrowed this idea. Uh, from a, a North American scholar called Guy Ottolano. Um, he wrote this book on a couple of uh, public intellectuals, C.P. Snow and F.R. Leavis, and he kind of sketched this idea at the end of his book, and I thought, oh, what a fascinating idea. So it really came from that, to be honest. But, uh, yeah. I mean, it's important to note in, in what you've said there that, you know, the meritocratic moment doesn't come from nowhere, as, as it were. And um, there's a combination, I guess, of, you know, a broad kind of set of changes in the kind of milieu uh, of, of British society, but also the specific role of, of these um, these books and this um, publishing house with, within that. And, and and the really kind of obvious thing is, um, and, and quite early on in the book, uh, you sketch uh, this out really, it is the, the first kind of attempts to found a new set of ideas about the importance of expertise, the role of professionals in society you know the idea of kind of uh, almost like what we'd call like evidence-based policy making now or, or something like this although that is absolutely not the language uh, of, of the time 
And all of this in response to a series of kind of social crises. And it'd be useful to hear, I I suppose, not so much the kind of the history uh, of of the period, but specifically the kind of um, the textual uh, or the kind of the publishing response uh, to those set of crises and and where this rise of the experts, the professionals uh, came from. I think you're absolutely right to suggest that I think some of the things I talk about in the early chapters of the book do have their origins much earlier. You know, my, my story kind of begins in the middle of the 1930s, but really a lot of the things I, I talk about, a lot of the changes that I map, really took root um, uh, much, much earlier. What I'm really talking about in those early chapters is is basically the way in which certain ideas about knowledge and expertise start to have political consequences. And, and it I think to, to sum it all up, really, is the idea that, you know, the aristocratic idea that basically political leadership and good forms of knowledge can be concentrated in a small kind of group of of, uh, of, of leaders um, who gain their status on the basis of their social background, that whole idea kind of gets displaced. And there's a real kind of privileging of ideas about um, technical expertise, um, about expanding educational opportunity and so forth which is really coming alongside kind of the popularisation of, of, of social science and British sociology. Um, it's coming alongside the increased status for, for certain public intellectuals, people like H.G. Wells, for instance. And I think all of this kind of speaks very directly to that, what we could call kind of a conjuncture in the late 1930s, this kind of moment of crisis, but also opportunity that follows from uh, follows from the political kind of upheaval, upheavals of that kind of moment. I think a lot of intellectuals and policymakers are suddenly thinking, well, look, we need to move in a different direction. Um, and when they're doing this, they're often saying, well, really what we need to do is to embrace the, poli- the cultural politics of modernity. We need to embrace technological change. We need to emb- embrace social science and so forth. Um, so what I try to do in the early chapters of the book is try to kind of map Penguin onto that story and think about how Penguin is popularising some of these um, kind of ideas um, and, and really constructing what you could call a kind of a new regime of knowledge, um, which is built, you could argue, on some some meritocratic kind of principles. I've learned certainly believed that every reader should have access to good knowledge, regardless of their social background. I suppose that is extended through um, writers who are trying to think through ideas about kind of equality, freedom, and then this rise of, of meritocracy. And I mean, there's a lot going on um, in the early chapters of the book, both, as, as you've said, you know, the concern for a sort of um, affordable, sounds dismissive, doesn't it? But, you know, uh, the kind of um, accessible, affordable uh, form of knowledge in these books, but also these, you know, quite grand um, political uh, agendas. And, and I, I wonder where the sort of um, the story of these kind of big political agendas coalesces in uh, meritocracy, how I suppose the um, the support for meritocracy is set out in the books, uh, both, you know, kind of during the war and, and maybe slightly afterwards. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting here is that the, the kind of two key concepts come to the fore in, in the wake of the crisis of the 1930s. So the big crises are basically, there's one that's domestic and one that's international. And the domestic is basically mass unemployment and the international one is the, is the ascendancy of fascism and the threat that it poses. And there's two concepts that kind of come to the fore here, I think, are equality and freedom and thinking about how to bring them into relationship with each other. 
And it's definitely the case that in some respects, everybody wants more of both. We want more inequality, but also more freedom. Um, but of course, you could argue that these concepts are always in, in kind of a fraught relationship with each other. And my own view is what kind of happens, um, particularly over the course of the wartime period, is that a kind of compromise is reached um, and the meritocracy kind of plays into this. Because what the principle of meritocracy does is it kind of defers the question of whether we should go for equality or go for freedom. It kind of says we can we can kind of have both. We can have equality of opportunity, um, and then that should hopefully in the long run have an impact on equality of outcomes. So I actually think there was very few people in the wartime period who were actively um, campaigning in favour of a meritocracy as a political objective. But there was lots of people who were trying to suggest that it should be kind of an intermediary goal. Um, so you have socialists on the left saying, well, look, meritocracy isn't really what we want. Um, we want something more than that. But it would be a good step. Uh, and then you've got people on the right, particularly conservatives, saying, well, look, we're quite suspicious of equality. But we could probably buy into the idea of equal opportunity because we do think that we have a duty to make sure that those at the bottom of the social ladder can climb it. So by no means were, were these these kind of constituencies in, in concrete agreement with each other, but they were agreeing, I would argue, on certain kind of intermediary steps to get to their end goals. And in a sense, it was a kind of an act of deferral. So I, my argument is that the kind of the post-war political settlement really deferred a lot of difficult questions that were probably going to be asked later on, and that's exactly what happens, I think, in, in the later chapters of my book, Trace, the kind of return of these these difficult questions. The, the obvious difficult question um, kind of coalesces in may, maybe the most famous of, of the uh, of, of the Penguin specials, which is Jung's uh, Rise of the Meritocracy, which is you know the, like this really famous uh, critique of, of some of the, I suppose as you describe them, kind of compromises um, that both left and right are, are making um, on their you know sort of roadmaps to. Um, particular social visions and this book I, I suppose gives us clues about the broader return of ideological conflicts that happened in the 50s and often you know we, we see the history of the 1950s in Britain uh, through the lens of you know the cliched post-war consensus uh, the idea of you know the decline of political conflict because arguments about how to run the economy are kind of settled. And actually for many historians and, and political economists, this uh, vision of post-war consensus is just like not true. You know, you know it, it's something that uh, has seen a lot of kind of debunking or, or a lot of um, sort of de- debating and, and, and rejecting over time. And, so, and something like Jung's book, I suppose, is, is a nice clue about this. Uh, about you know we're seeing a much more kind of uh, conflicted and contested moment in British society that on the left is suspicious of various things uh, like you know changing uh, patterns of inequality. On the right is suspicious of various other things that maybe the right is quite comfortable with now, like you know things like maybe social mobility and, and various forms of kind of social change. Um, it struck me reading the book that you know both left and right seem to quite dislike commercial uh, kind of activity and the rise of American culture in, in British society, uh, or the, the left seemingly more so. So yeah, that's a very long-winded way of kind of saying um, why was Michael Young's book important? 
Yeah, so I mean, it's worth noting that that uh, this is really the book that that coins the term meritocracy. So I'm sure many of your listeners have, have come across the term meritocracy before, uh, but they might not know that actually is a very it's, it's a very recent uh, vintage. Uh, so Michael Young, who was a, a left wing sociologist, uh, publishes this book in 1958 um, called "The Rise of the Meritocracy." This kind of dystopian um, kind of sociological narrative, which kind of you know, places the author in uh, in the future, uh, and they basically tell this story about how um, how Britain has has uh, endured all sorts of uh, social kind of conflict as a result of uh, meritocratic arrangements. So, my argument is that we have a concept of meritocracy long before nineteen fifty eight. But Michael Young really puts his finger on what we mean by meritocracy by coming up with this word. Um, and what he really tried to do with this book, it was published uh, as a pelican. Uh, they were the blue-covered um, non-fiction books that the Penguin published in, I think it was 1960, so a couple of years after the hardback. Uh, what he really tried to do with this is try and say, well, look, if we continue on our current trajectory, what is the future going to look like? And he thought it was going to look really quite grim indeed. So he traced this kind of loose consensus on ideas about educational opportunity and that kind of thing and said, well, look, what this is going to do is result in a, the creation of a kind of a small intellectual elite who are going to accumulate um, a disproportionate amount of the rewards in society. And the problem with a meritocracy is the people at the bottom of the social ladder have no excuse for their um, apparent um, uh, low status in society. They can't say, well, look, the system hasn't given me equal opportunity. Um, and so he traces like the emergence of all, all sorts of different social conflicts, um, which cut across uh, uh, class uh, categories, uh, and gender in particular devotes quite a lot of attention to, to gender. And I think it really spoke, this book was published in 1958, it really spoke to what was going on at that moment, the kind of the eclipse of the apparent kind of uh, consensual kind of period in the 1950s, which to a large extent is just a, you know, a post-hoc construction. Um, it's certainly the case that he says, look, well, maybe we need to revisit these kinds of questions about how we distribute status and wealth. And it really sets the tone for what comes next, which I think is really the slow kind of unravelling of what I refer to as this this kind of meritocratic moment. Unravelling is the uh, is the kind of key term, isn't it? Because um, if the fifties is maybe where you know this story of professionals, experts, you know, knowledge, um, you know, almost kind of almost technocratic approaches to uh, rebuilding society. By the time we're into the sixties, um, that's kind of off the table a bit. And, uh, you talk about in the, in the middle of the book, the, the rise of essentially stories that are saying society is in decline. And these stories are, are framed in, in different ways, really. Um, particularly the, the rise of, um, a, a quite grand, um, kind of what we call now sort of cultural studies tradition, on the left about various uh, cultural and, and social declinist narratives, but also the birth of uh, what we come to understand as kind of the new right and sort of uh, what what became kind of you know Thatcherism in, in, into the 1980s and that political project. And it's it's such a sharp sort of contrast that I think uh, almost you know the, the book kind of charts this this change of direction after you know both uh, Jung and and in into the 1960s. And again, you know, it, it's a contrast with popular history, I guess, which, um, or, you know, 
popular memory of the period, which talks about the 60s as being, you know, the white heat of technology and, you know, the kind of England winning the World Cup and the rise of popular culture and stuff like this. So what are these kind of declinist uh, narratives that are being um, put forward in, in Penguin books in the 60s? Yeah, I mean, one thing that I try, I've tried to, tried to kind of do with the book is maybe reframe our kind of chronology of post-war British politics. I think, you know, some of the, the narratives that we have available to us say, well, you know, basically the 1960s was was the, was the if there was a kind of a meritocratic moment in, in Britain's political history, that was it. Think about Harold Wilson and all his appeals to the white heat of technological change and think about all of the movements taking place in that in that decade for, for equal opportunity and that kind of thing. What I've tried to kind of do by using the Penguin Specials as kind of a starting point is kind of trace a kind of an intellectual kind of unravelling, actually, of the meritocratic promise in that moment. Because really my argument is that what comes out of all these kind of declinist ideas, these ideas that Britain's basically in, in some kind of sociological or, or cultural kind of decay, is a, 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 basically a foregrounding for what comes next, which is the politics of Margaret Thatcher and Thatcherism in the 1970s, where you have increasing appeals to kind of entrepreneurial ideas, where you've got um, uh, more egalitarian ideas really being marginalised in favour of the idea of greater competition between different uh, groups um, in society. And, and really, you know, by the time you get to the kind of mid-late 1960s, you know, you're almost getting a, a pattern forming, really, where, where you know, you're seeing some of the older kind of egalitarian ideas that are really been very predominant in the wartime period, being kind of marginalised. And I think that sets the stage for kind of a lot of the political battles for the 1970s, where you've got new ideological formations on the left and the right, basically trying to draw a line under the metric moment and say, well, we need to go in a different direction. This isn't really going to going to work for us. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's an interesting moment, I think, that the 1960s, where, you know, if you look at kind of the surface forms, particularly of the early 1960s, um, it looks as if it's kind of a period of relative kind of stability um, and, and consensus. But I think behind that, when you look at some of the intellectual currents of that period, the picture is a little bit more complicated. And in a sense, the writing was already on the wall, I think, really, for, for the meritocratic moment um, right then. So thinking in particular about books like Michael Shanks' The Stagnant Society, and I call that chapter, Chapter 4, The Stagnant Society, uh, for good reason, because I think Michael Shanks really put his finger on a lot of these, a lot of these things. Um, and really, in some respects, Shanks was a kind of a social democrat and quite a kind of laborist. But he, some of his ideas were also pointing in a different direction. I wouldn't call him a proto-Thatcherite by any means, but they were definitely moving away from some of the more egalitarian ideas that had been predominant in the in the nineteen fifties. It, it, it's usually you mention um, the book there because I'm, I'm sort of slightly conscious that we've. Uh, talked a lot about, I guess, the kind of broader social um, situation for the publication of the book. But uh, we haven't actually talked about that many of the books. Yeah. And maybe would it be possible to pick out a couple of the books uh, from the 70s? Because if the 60s is the story of, I guess, these critical moments that are saying things like, well, look, you know, various um, policies are not working. Um, you, you know, whether it's in terms of like uh, issues of, of sort of town planning, homelessness, housing, the economy, popular culture or, or whatever. Um, and the 70s you, you describe as this much more kind of, you know, conflicting and, and conflictual uh, decade, both in terms of, of left and 
in terms of writers, you know, kind of uh, projects emerge and, and crystallize. And I wonder if you could just pick out a couple of books that might summarize those kind of conflicts um, in the uh, the 1970s. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, and I think you're right. I think we, we, we need to make a bit of space for, for kind of the books themselves. And I think that, you know, there's maybe a few things I could say more generally, which is I think the books need to be understood not just as kind of vehicles for ideas, but as important material objects. Um, you know, we need to think not just about, you know, the, the words that the authors wrote, but also about the cover designs, about how they were distributed and that kind of thing, and about the stories that lay behind them. And what's interesting about the, the period that I discussed in the later chapters of the book, the kind of late 1960s onwards, is that the books are starting to reflect a significant change in uh, the nature of higher education in Britain, massive expansion of the student population and so forth, which is creating an audience for new kinds of ideas and also allowing new kinds of intellectuals to get their voices heard. So scholars on the on the kind of nascent new left, people like um, uh, Gareth Stedman Jones, for instance, and, and Perry Anderson, um, uh, uh, second wave feminists like Sheila Rowbottom, for instance. Um, a lot of these of, the, of these figures are, are publishing their works with Penguin, and they're re- reaching a mass audience. And I think if I want to put my finger on kind of a couple of of key ones from that period, probably Student Power, an edited volume all about kind of student protests, uh, which I think really tried to critique the whole meritocratic logic about education. Um, education for Democracy, another one, uh, was actually under the, the imprint of the Penguin Education Specials, another very important one talking about these kinds of issues. Um, and May Day Manifesto uh, from 1968, which is kind of a, an attempt from a lot of left-wing intellectuals to try and kind of rethink British socialism in the wake of the apparent failings of the Wilson government of the 1960s. And I see those as kind of turning point books in many respects. They almost kind of draw a line under the under the meritocratic moment um, and set the set the terrain really for, for the political battles of the 1970s. What happens commercially um, to Penguin? Because again, I mean, and, and this speaks to the kind of the, the breadth of the book's um, interest. You know, you mentioned things like, you know, the covers and um, you know, marketing and stuff like this, and we talked about ideas and the kind of historical context. But also, we should be aware that this is the story of a commercial uh, publishing house, and you know, <laughs> at some point they have to make money. Um, and towards the end of the book, you, you I suppose, bring in um, commercial concerns, both in terms of a of a new um, kind of set of management at the top end um, of of the publisher. Um, a new set of concerns over things like rights and reprints and, and stuff like this. And, and I wonder what um, kind of the commercial context or, or the commercial demands on Penguin do to the, uh, to the imprint in the 1980s. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good, uh, it's a really good question. And I do think we need to pay a lot of attention to this. Uh, I think there's a more general point here, actually, which I think historians of ideas probably need to pay more attention to the history of the book, actually. Uh, because it really forces us to think about the book as not just a material object, but as a commercial one. Um, and, and I guess there's a general um, pattern here, which is that sales figures fall, but production costs fall uh, also over the course of the post-war period. So if a Penguin special was going to turn a profit in, in 1935, it probably needed to sell at least 60,000 copies, possibly 70,000. Okay, so a lot of books. I mean, very difficult to think of any books that sell in those kinds of quantities today. The corresponding figure for, say, the 1970s, you're looking at as low as maybe 10,000. 
Um, so a massive shift really in the need for books to, to sell, um, but also much smaller readerships. So by the time we get into the 1970s, really your average Penguin special is not really selling in anywhere near the quantities of the, of, of the early ones. Um, so that's a big uh, change, really, that Penguin has to kind of cope with. Um, and it's also the case that the broader fortunes of Penguin change and the nature of publishing changes. Um, Penguin, over the course of the post-war period, has become less reliant on just reprinting old books and selling them and is much more dependent on income from a regional what we call front list publishing. Um, and front list publishing becomes a lot more expensive over the course of the post-war period, particularly once we start getting the kind of bestseller culture uh, of the 1970s where Penguin's having to bid for the rights for, for, for big authors and spend quite a lot of money on advances and on marketing and that kind of thing. Um, but Penguin does struggle financially, particularly in the 1970s, kind of comes out the other side under the tenure of, uh, of Peter May, an American publisher. Um, but there's interesting stories to be told here about changing audiences and that kind of thing um, and how Penguin deals with that. So one of the kind of subplots in the book is thinking about how Penguin kind of conceives of its audience and conceives of, of the kind of ideas that they want to engage with. Um, and I, I bring this to the fore, particularly in the later chapters, when uh, some people are saying that Penguin has basically become much too left-wing and is only writing books for students and needs to return to the political centre ground. So it's interesting how Penguin itself gets dragged into the political contestation of that decade. And where are we now? I mean, there's lots of other things we, we, we could have picked up on uh, throughout this conversation. There's um, you know a whole range of, uh, of, again, you know contextual things, Whole range of discussions about the books themselves, um, you know th- that um, set of commercial concerns in, into the seventies uh, and eighties is also matched by uh, a big story of, of kind of social change and, and the rise of particular new identities in, in Britain. But the, the book, at the very very end of the book, talks about uh, if not a resurgence, but certainly the, the reemergence of um, both, you know these physical objects, um, these specials, but also um, I, I think um, a sort of a concern with uh, reaching um, similar parts of kind of public debate and, and communicating, particularly actually, you know, social uh, scientific I- ideas um, with, you know, kind of clarity and um, accessible and affordable um vehicles in, in the form of the the books so wh- where are we now in terms of uh the role of these kinds of um specials in contemporary society are they you know serving kind of similar aims is it just impossible to kind of make comparisons with, with any earlier uh periods um you know not just in lockdown terms but but also in terms of things like reading habits and you know uh, buying habits, the rise of electronic modes of, of, of book consumption, um, or is there still this kind of set of similar concerns about shaping the uh, intellectual, political and, and, and social context in which they're published? It's a really good question, and I think in many respects, um, when we look at the kind of the uh, political publishing landscape in Britain and beyond at the moment, it's not a mix of the old and the new, and I'll try and explain that a little bit. Um, it's it's worth noting that the penguin kind of exits the political stage to some extent in the in the kind of nineteen eighties. And it still publishes books on politics, of course, but the penguin specials as a distinctive kind of series um, is, is wound up. 
But uh, Penguin brought them back about a decade ago, and they've been kind of publishing them steadily ever, ever since as e-books principally. A couple of them have been published um, in hard copy, but quite a lot of them are, are e-book exclusives. And um, as I was kind of finishing up my book, I kind of reflected on some of these books that have been published more recently, and I started thinking, well, in some respects they're both familiar, but in other respects they're very strange. Uh, the familiarity came from the fact that principally these are books authored by experts and intellectuals commentating on, 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 on uh, matters that are important um, and to ordinary readers. There's also something strange about them in the sense that it drew attention really to the way in which a lot of our ideas and assumptions that we have about politics have changed uh, over the course of the last last few decades. Um, difficult to sum up what they kind of all mean. I, I suppose there's probably two points I'd make here. One, I think they definitely, the more recent books, are, I mean, are, are speaking to a displacement probably of that kind of third-way politics that was so dominant in the 1990s and early noughties that we might associate with, say, Bill Clinton and Tony Blair. I think a kind of a line has been drawn under those and really was, I think, the, the principal motivator for that was the financial crash. And a lot of these recent specials have been about that moment, that event, and its consequences. And then the other thing they probably speak to is kind of the increasing kind of tempo of political time. I mean, Alan Lane was always uh, praised in the 1930s for how quickly he could get these specials out. You know, he could usually get these books out um, even as quickly as within a month of the, the manuscript being received. Um, but I think the books then tended to age quite well. They kind of lasted for quite a long time in terms of their relevance. And now I'm not entirely sure. It seems as if we're entering a new political moment every couple of weeks. And it's amazing how quick these, these books seem to age. Um, and that probably tells us something, I think, about the increased kind of tempo of our political time. So I don't know if that's what you were looking for, but I think if there's two things that I think they kind of speak to, that's, that's probably it. And in terms of your, your own work, um, you, you mentioned the kind of, you know, accelerated tempo of contemporary politics and obviously the, um, you know, ever-changing on the one hand, but also unbelievably static, uh, given a year of lockdown in many uh, societies around the world. Um, what what is your sort of uh, interest and in, in your work um, next uh, beyond this um, Penguin project? Well, I should say that this one took me a very long time uh, for all sorts of different reasons. And so I didn't think that I would really be wanting to go and write another book. Uh, but I, I kind of am interested in actually trying to write another book. So um, one thing I'm really interested in is British conservatism and thinking about how that kind of ideology works. So maybe get some ideas on that front. But I've also got the idea of maybe doing something on um, on the late cultural theorist Stuart Hall. Um, a big admirer of Stuart Hall, and anybody who happens to pick up my Penguin book will probably see that very very quickly. Um, so yeah, possibly something on, on Stuart Hall. I was thinking maybe a um, a certain kind of uh, intellectual biography or something like that. But uh, that is a very early idea. But that's probably what I might draw my attention to next. I think. 